Hi, I'm Shannon, one of the podcast producers here at C-SPAN, and this week on the Lectures in History podcast, the fight for control of Atlantic sea routes during World War II. For the Allied powers, the battle had three objectives, blockade of the Axis powers in Europe, security of Allied sea movements, and freedom to project military power across the seas. The Axis, in turn, hoped to frustrate Allied use of the Atlantic to wage war. Coming up, University of Notre Dame professor Ian Ona Johnson discusses the contest to control Atlantic sea routes during World War II. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcasts. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operation so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. All right, welcome back, students. Today we're going to be discussing the Battle of the Atlantic. We've got a couple of key questions we'll be attempting to analyze today. First, was the Battle of the Atlantic, as one of your authors has suggested, the most important victory in the Second World War? With that in mind, can we assess how much it reshaped the conflict on a global scale beyond just the Atlantic? Second, what role did evolving technology have on this campaign? How did the cycle of technological innovation and improvisation affect its ultimate outcome? And third, why did the Allies ultimately win the Battle of the Atlantic and the Axis lose? What key decisions ended up resulting in that outcome? Now, before we jump into the narrative, I want to just indicate for you the stakes of the Battle of the Atlantic. The first key reason that the Battle of the Atlantic was so significant was, of course, military, operational. Most major operations of the Second World War would be determined by the amount of transportation available to the Allies at sea and the ability of them to safely convey troops, munitions, and materiel to different battlefields across the globe. Transportation was the key bottleneck in many of the strategic decisions facing the Allied leaders. If there weren't enough ships to safely bring men and their weapons to a given theater, the operation would have to be canceled, regardless of any other factor. And of course, this was particularly true as the United States and Great Britain were separated by bodies of water from all of the battlefields where they would be contesting Axis forces on on the ground. Now, the most important of these strategic plans that depended so heavily on transportation at sea was, of course, the planned invasion of France, the opening of the Second Front. This would require the buildup of enormous forces in Great Britain itself. In other words, if the Allies could control the seas, particularly the Atlantic, millions of American soldiers could pour into Great Britain and prepare for the invasion of continental Europe. The second critical element, a critical outcome upon which the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, which would be determined by the Battle of the Atlantic, was the survival of Great Britain itself. The great German hope, particularly before American entry into the war, had been that they could starve Great Britain into submission. After all, Great Britain was an island. It was not self-sufficient in food production. The Churchill cabinet calculated that Great Britain required roughly 26 million tons of imports a year just to survive, just to feed its own people and keep its factories running. Now, beginning in March 1941, even before American entry into the war, Lend-Lease proved a particularly critical part of those British imports. Remember, Roosevelt had declared that the United States would be the arsenal of democracy, that it would supply the world from its factories, from its economic surplus. Weapons, tanks, planes, ships, food would flow to all of the Allied countries, and that this would be a key component in the American contribution to the war. But American food, industrial goods, weapon systems, and even soldiers could not impact the war unless they could actually get to the places they needed to go. And you get some sense from this map how global Lend-Lease would become. Now, Lend-Lease always prioritized Great Britain from its inception in March of 1941, but also grew increasingly critical to the Soviet Union as well. By the end of the war, Lend-Lease would provide roughly a year's worth of food to the entire Red Army. 
as well as serving to re-mechanize its forces, providing over 400,000 tanks and cars that would allow the Red Army to go on the offensive in the summer of 1944 to such remarkable effect, something we'll talk about in a few weeks. By 1945, total American aid shipments overseas would amount to $700 billion in contemporary uh, dollars. Roughly 10% of the entire U.S. war effort was directed to sending supplies overseas. And again, without control of the seas, all of that American economic power could not be leveraged towards final victory. The stakes are thus very high when we begin thinking about the Battle of the Atlantic. What was the German strategy when the war began in Europe in September 1939? Well, the German Navy was largely unprepared for the conflict. Admiral Erich Raeder, who was commanding the German Navy and had commanded the German Navy since 1928, was in many ways an antiquated man in his strategic and tactical views. He believed in big ships, surface cruisers, and he didn't necessarily look with great fondness on airplanes or submarines, things that would in fact prove decisive in the next conflict. Instead, he envisioned a vast German Navy composed of fast cruisers and battleships. These would sneak into the Atlantic and blockade the UK, all part of Germany's Z plan. And you can see all of the ships that were, were intended for that program. But few of these surface ships were actually built before the outbreak of war. Raider had been told by Hitler to bank on having until 1948 to build up German naval power, something that obviously did not come to pass. In addition, Hitler had not been sure, as we've already discussed, whether or not Great Britain would declare war at all. And as a result, he had not prioritized his navy. He hoped to avoid a naval arms race, the sort of thing that had guaranteed British entry into the First World War. And in part, as a result, the German navy would be by far the weakest of the three main branches of the German military on the eve of war. Despite the utility of the submarine in the First World War, where it had been used to such devastating effect against Allied shipping, the Germans had only 57 submarines and their entire navy at the beginning of the war, in part because of Hitler and Raider's decisions. At the start of the war, roughly 30 or fewer of these submarines could be at sea at any one time, facing hundreds of merchant ships and dozens upon dozens of escort vessels in the vast expanse of the Atlantic. Now, Karl Dönitz was the commander of the German submarine arm, a raider's subordinate. He was an ardent Nazi. Hitler had actually appointed him as his successor in 1945 upon his own suicide. Dönitz was also a micromanager. He tried to control entire battles in the Atlantic from bases in Europe by radio, and we'll talk about some of the implications of that. Both Dönitz and Raider prioritized discipline, they feared the naval mutinies that had been so devastating in the, in the final months of the First World War. Neither Dönitz nor Raider would emphasize intelligence or logistics or really think that coherently in terms of grand strategy. For instance, Raider had urged the Fuhrer to declare war on the United States so that his submarines could sink more targets, not because he believed his forces were capable of defeating the United States. In other words, he had it backwards. So the Germans were handicapped from the outset, at least to a degree, by its leadership. On the British side, the, the Royal Navy had three different admirals who would hold the key position of commander-in-chief of the Western approaches, responsible for overseeing much of the Battle of the Atlantic. And the most significant is the one pictured here, Admiral Max Horton. He would serve in this role from 1942 to 1945. He was a former submariner himself. He had extensive experience as a submarine captain in the Baltic in the First World War. And in fact, he would command the British submarine arm until 1942. He thus had a very good sense of what Raider and Dönitz were going to attempt to do with submarines and proved quite astute in coming up with counter-strategies. For a variety of reasons, while the German Air Force and Army had made huge technological strides in the interwar period. We've talked about the development of radio, the improvement of aircraft and armor design. The German Navy had somewhat less success. The main German submarine at the start of the Second World War was the Type 7 submarine pictured here. 
It was basically a slim steel cylinder about 170 feet long and 30 feet across. It had two large diesel engines to propel it through the water. These engines also charged a battery that was used for movement while underwater. Now, by the way, you'll see a lot of mentions of knots in your readings. This is a nautical measurement that's derived from the old practice of tying knots in a rope and dragging it behind a ship to to see uh, or calculate speed. I'm going to stick with miles per hour in in my remarks today just to keep things a little bit simpler for you. The Type 7's engines would let it run around 20 miles per hour on the surface, and about half of that underwater when relying on battery power. These diesel engines required oxygen, so when underwater, the submarine had to run on battery power, and it was quite limited in doing so. It could remain submerged for about 24 hours, which technically made it a submersible instead of a a true submarine. But if it remained underwater for more than 24 hours, the, the submarine could run out of oxygen. The Type 7 could go down to about 700 feet in in underwater, but any lower than that, and it risked being crushed by the pressures of the deep. The Type 7 could cover about 10,000 nautical miles at reduced speed. So for those who uh, have a good sense of geography, that's around to the coast of the United States, eastern coast of the U.S., and and back to Germany. Because of limitations uh, in terms of their size, these submarines could only carry about 14 torpedoes on board at the best of times. Only five torpedo tubes from which to launch those 14. Four were in the front and one in the rear. Now, these torpedoes themselves had a a variety of technical issues which handicapped their reliability, though by 1942 they were generally quite good. And it should be noted that the Germans did better than the American Navy, who had so many torpedo issues, one captain demanded that, uh, that the the fleet at Pearl Harbor tested a torpedo by dropping it on concrete outside their headquarters, uh, hoisted up, hoist up on a winch and drop it down. It didn't detonate, uh, giving a sign that the Americans, too, had, had real serious issues with torpedo design. The Germans were better than that, but still constantly trying to innovate and make sure those torpedoes would detonate when hitting a given target. In addition to the torpedoes, most subs also had a gun mounted on their decks. You can, can see it in the image here. These were either to sink enemy ships or to shoot down enemy aircraft that might attempt to sink them from the skies. Now, while the Type 7 had a better range, more torpedoes, and could go deeper than World War I submarines, to save on cost and to speed up construction, the Type 7 had only a single hull. That is, it was one long steel cylinder. This was actually different than the First World War, where German submarines had been designed with two cylinders in order to essentially make the submarines more robust and make it more likely that if something went wrong with one hull, the the submariners might have a chance to escape or maneuver or do something. There had been improvements in steel design, metallurgy, so the the German Navy thought this was not going to be a major source of concern. But uh, in in fact, if we look, uh, German submarines in the Second World War were more likely to be destroyed in combat than their comparative ones in the First World War, in part because of this single-hull construction approach which, again, saved time and money, but at a cost. Now, you got some sense from the readings what life was like on board uh, these submarines in in the German fleet, particularly the the Type 7. It was cramped. It was claustrophobic. As I recently learned from a a student essay, in fact, uh, Michael Jordan's private yacht is about the same length and has three times the displacement as one of these Type 7 submarines. And that yacht is supposed to accommodate only a family of six, whereas one of these Type 7s accommodated 50 or more men on lengthy patrol. Now, you read an excerpt from Captain Werner's memoirs of his time at sea, and it gives you some sense of what life on board was like. Cruises could last for months. Men rotated bunks, so they got to know each other very well, sometimes too well. Long periods of boredom were punctuated by moments of absolute terror. You weren't likely to get wounded in the submarine service. You were much more likely to drown or be killed when your submarine was crushed, sinking into the depths. You can't even see when you successfully sunk an enemy ship. You'd hear it, perhaps, in the distance, but as soon as you fired your torpedoes, usually you had to dive to flee the countermeasures that it invariably brought on from Allied forces. Inside the submarine, it was often bitterly cold, awash with salt water, when the ship was running on the surface. Sometimes it was extraordinarily hot because of the diesel engines. 
Later modifications, which improved some of the combat functionality of the submarines, actually resulted in the submarines filling up with diesel fumes. Water poured in with even greater frequency once the snorkel was introduced on a number of these designs. Everything could be damp and miserable on top of all of the other stresses. And perhaps the most notable element of this experience was how important the captain was to life on board. Most merchant ships were sunk by just a handful of German captains. Extremely aggressive captains did the vast majority of the work for the Germans in the Battle of the Atlantic. They tended to be short-lived, however. Passive captains tended to live longer lives but had relatively little impact on the course of events. Your skipper played a big role in what your life would look like at sea. Who were the men commanding these German submarines? Well, this is uh, Silent Otto, Otto Kreschmer, pictured here, probably the most famous of the German submariners. Most of these men were very young. Almost all of them were under 30. Very few U-boat captains were still in service from the First World War. Many of them became like movie stars, particularly in the early phases of the war, particularly if they were successful. Widely lauded in Germany, appearing in newsreels, getting all sorts of attention and rewards. But the incredible stresses of command led to psychological problems, heavy drinking, and a remarkably high suicide rate among those commanders who were not lost at sea. Keep in mind, by the late stages of the war, uh, on a given patrol, you only had about a 60% chance of coming back. Can you imagine going to work and having almost a 50-50 chance of coming back alive? That was what daily life was like for many of these, uh, these sailors. Kreshmer, pictured here, was uh, 28 years old when the war began. In the first two years of the war, before his capture, he sank nearly 50 ships, totaling 300,000 tons of shipping. He was known as Silent Otto for his tendency to run silent and to avoid radio contact. He was generally respected, if feared, by his Royal Navy adversaries, as he, unlike a number of other German captains, he tended to follow the rules of war. In fact, some even called him Gentleman Otto, as he had a reputation for uh, pulling crews uh, of ships he'd sunk at least some distance towards safety, and in a few instances, dropping off blankets and even whiskey from his submarine to the unfortunate men of ships that he had sunk. In early March 1941, he attacked a convoy but was disabled by depth charges. His submarine began sinking rapidly. The crew somehow managed to reestablish control after the submarine had passed crush depth, around 700 feet, just long enough to blow their ballast tanks and skyrocket up to the surface. His submarine disabled, Kreshmer scuttled his boat while ordering his crew to get off and surrender. And he himself was actually captured, very fortunately for him, for him, and would spend the rest of the war in a POW camp in Canada. I'd add in one of the funny sort of ironies of history, he would end up commanding NATO naval forces against Soviet submarines during the early Cold War, the reverse of the job he'd had in the Second World War. It should be noted that there were other captains not as well-versed in the laws of war and, and chivalry as Kreshmer might have been. Captains like Heinz Eck, who would surface after sinking ships and machine-gun survivors in the water. The biggest tendency tended to be captains trained after the war had begun, who in many instances were more radical and more willing to violate the rules of war. And I should note, we talked about total war on the Eastern Front. There were elements of it that appear even in this Battle of the Atlantic, which is usually seen as as, uh, somewhat more decent in some way, shape, or form. It wasn't just the Axis that did some of these, these things I've described. So, for instance... Two of the first German submarines sunk off the American coast after American entry into the war. Uh, The submarines surfaced, their crews tried to get off, and they were machine-gunned in the water by American sailors who were furious at the heavy loss of life that they had inflicted on American shipping. Let's now turn to a discussion of, of tactics. What does it look like to fight a battle in the middle of the Atlantic? In 1917, when confronted by the the U-boat menace, the British had organized convoys. And the basic idea was that you'd concentrate your forces, you'd encircle uh, your, your defenseless merchant vessels with a ring of escorts that could protect them against submarines. 
Convoys would set out for their destination with these escort ships uh, well-equipped and prepared for anti-submarine warfare. The concentration of forces allowed for relatively few vessels to protect a large number uh, of ships simultaneously, protecting that vast flow of goods and supplies from across the Atlantic. Now, there were logistical costs to doing it, which is why the British Empire had waited so long to use a convoy system in the First World War. Ships had to wait in port, sometimes for days upon days, for enough ships to assemble that a convoy could then proceed. They also had to be dispersed when they reached their destination because usually a single harbor could not accommodate the vast tonnage of a single convoy. The survival rate, however, was much higher than in the case of so-called independence, ships that just took off by themselves and tried to run the gamut of German submarines on their own. In part, this was because of the difficulty of finding a convoy in the vast Atlantic. This looks like an enormous number of ships, but in the grand scale of the Atlantic Ocean, it's much harder, actually, to find this small grouping on the surface than, say, these ships dispersed over a wide area. Now, as soon as the Second World War began, the British began moving to reinstitute this system. Now, Karl Dönitz, looking back on the First World War, had come up with what he viewed as the antidote to this British tactic. This was the idea of the wolf pack. The idea was that the German submarines would be well-equipped with communications equipment. If one German submarine happened to find a convoy proceeding across the Atlantic, it would maintain a safe distance and radio back to to Germany, to Dönitz's headquarters, which was either in France or Germany, and then he would begin alerting other U-boats to converge on the convoy at an opportune point. Then other German U-boats could descend and they could attack in mass, disrupting the convoy and overwhelming convoy escorts. And keep in mind, at the beginning of the war, the British had nowhere near enough vessels to protect these, these convoys. As we'll see in a moment, some convoys would transit the Atlantic with only one or two really capable escort ships. So a wolf pack of five or six submarines could absolutely overwhelm and and devastate a convoy very rapidly. Now, this idea, this tactic of wolf pack did require, or did have one fundamental vulnerability. It required long-distance coordination by radio, which meant that, in theory, radio messages could be intercepted or monitored by the Allies, and thus the Allies could be alerted about the location and plans of German submarines at sea. Now let's turn to the actual narrative of operations, the naval campaign here. When the Second World War began, German surface cruisers, raiders, uh, beloved surface ships, hit British shipping lanes in the South and North Atlantic. The Graf Spee sunk nine ships in a few weeks before being caught by the British and scuttled off the coast of Argentina. And many other German surface ships had similarly brief careers at sea. Submarines, by contrast, demonstrated their worth quite rapidly uh, and proved much more effective at striking both British shipping and military targets. The Battle of the Atlantic would thus proceed over the course of 1939 through 1943 uh, across the uh, vast geography, all the way up from the Arctic Ocean down uh, to the South Atlantic. The key section uh, of the battle would take place in what was known as the Mid-Atlantic Gap. You can see this area highlighted in red in the middle. This was the area where, at the start of the war, land-based aircraft could not patrol, where submarines could not be pursued, followed, or identified from the air. It was here that they would have their greatest successes and concentrate their efforts. In the opening days of the war, while the German submarine fleet would enjoy some advantages, as I noted, it had so few operational ships that wolf packs would not really be formed. But the conquest of Norway and France, which added 20,000 miles of coastline from which German raiders could foray, made it possible not only to launch large numbers of submarines at the same time, but coordinate them from the relative proximity of the French coast. This made wolf packs possible for the first time. Sailing primarily from French ports, the Germans would enjoy what they would call uh, the first uh, happy time, die Glückezeit, July 1940 to April 1941. In this period, for every submarine lost at sea, the Germans would sink roughly 23 Allied ships. 
In total, during the first full year of their campaign in 1940, the Germans would sink more than 3.2 million tons of Allied shipping, far more than the Allies could replace at that juncture in the war. In fact, in Churchill's memoirs, he said this was the only moment where he was truly frightened, truly afraid that Great Britain might lose the war, before American entry and with the submarine menace threatening to starve the British Isles into submission. But because the the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, had relatively few ships at the start of the war, they were unable to completely cut off that vital North Atlantic trade. The British were able to thus work up adaptations and new defensive technologies to the various German tactics. And in addition, the British would partially crack German naval codes in this period and kill or capture three of Germany's best submarine commanders in rapid succession. Now, the readings give you some sense of what life was like on a convoy, as well as the perspective of a submariner. But I want to walk through the experiences of one convoy to give you a sense what this was actually like in practice. So Otto Kreschmer, then commanding the U-99, would take part in one of the fiercest naval battles of 1940, when a German wolf pack attacked SC-7 in October of 1940. SC-7 stood for Slow Convoy. It set out from Canada, uh, from Canada at, for the United Kingdom on October 5th. It had 35 ships in, in its convoy formation. They were carrying lumber, coal, and grain, mostly from Indiana, Ohio, and Minnesota. Steel, iron ore, and oil as well were part of the shipment. Now, several of the ships in this convoy were, were very slow, hence the designation slow convoy. And as you might imagine, convoys had to travel at the speed of the slowest ship, more or less. This meant that this convoy could only move about seven or eight miles per hour. That was actually slower than the top speed of a submarine, which meant that these ships were in a great deal of danger if they were spotted by German forces. This also meant it would take three long weeks to transit the North Atlantic until it reached the safety of British ports. And that was if the weather accommodated, which in the North Atlantic in October and November was often not the case. The convoy was under the command of a retired former admiral, but he had only one dedicated escort vessel, the HMS Scarborough, to police and protect this convoy. It was a small, light corvette of about the same size, but slower than the submarines that it was supposed to protect against. Now, the ship captains in this convoy were a mixed bunch. There were commanders from Norway, uh, captains from Norway, Canada, America, Great Britain, Greece, and others. They sometimes obeyed orders and sometimes not. They were an independent bunch. These are not military officers in command of these transport vessels. And many of them, if you read some of the the memoirs or radio traffic from the war, you can see that they resented being babysat, as they viewed it, by the Royal Navy, especially at this early stage of the war. On October 8th, three days out of port, a fierce storm hit this convoy, which slowed them down even further. The ships in the storm became dispersed. The SS Trevisa began to lag behind. Soon spotted by the U-124, it was sunk. Another straggler, the SS Enos, was picked off the following night. And drawing from uh, Dönitz's metaphor of the wolf, the wolves were essentially picking off the stragglers at the back of the herd. On October 17th, 12 days out of port, the wolves began to circle, smelling blood in the water. The U-48 struck that evening, sinking two boats with torpedoes. The Scarborough pursued and chased the U-48 until it dived and disappeared. But the attack drew off the Scarborough, making the entire rest of the convoy now vulnerable. The U-38 then surfaced, fired a torpedo that damaged and slowed down another freighter. The following night, five U-boats attacked in unison. They'd been following news of the convoy from their fellow captains. The entire attack was coordinated all the way from France by Admiral Dönitz, eager to micromanage what he believed was going to be a victory. The U-boats struck singly and in pairs, picking off ships at the edge and in the middle of the convoy. Some of these captains would sail into the midst of the convoy, surface, fire torpedoes in either directions, and disappear. They mostly attacked at night, which added terror, of course, for the lives of the crewmen on board. But it also aided the U-boats 
as they could rely on ship's silhouettes against the horizon, whether by moonlight or starlight. The submarines would quietly surface between ships, moving quickly in and out of the convoy, preventing any warships from, from coming to the aid of damaged vessels. On October 18th, Silent Auto surfaced in the middle of the convoy and fired torpedoes in both directions, rapidly sinking two ships, including the Kreekirk, which was loaded with steel, and sank almost immediately, drowning all 36 of its crew. Kreshmer recorded in his naval log that, quote, I fired three torpedoes spread among the convoy, three sunk. I made off at full speed to the southwest and again made contact with the convoy. Torpedoes from our other boats were constantly heard exploding. The British destroyers did not know how to help and occupy themselves by constantly firing star shells, which are of very little effect in the bright moonlight. I now proceed to start my attack against the convoy from astern. In just six hours, the wolf pack would sink 16 ships in stormy, icy waters, so cold that most of the crew who were submerged would drown. But the submarines were still not done. All five U-boats stuck to the convoy, able to travel nearly as fast as it could. The next day, another ship was damaged and began to fall behind. And giving you a sense of the terror that these merchant marine crews would experience, even though they were not attacked immediately, they abandoned ship, certain that they would be sunk as they trailed behind the rest of the convoy. On the night of October 19th, those remaining ships close enough to shore to receive air support and assistance were finally under at least partial protection from Great Britain. And at that point, the U-boats finally began to break off their attacks. Only eight ships would arrive, accompanied by the one warship. Two others would later arrive in port, heavily damaged. In the case of SC-7, in just five days, at the cost of no casualties, the U-boats had sunk 20 ships, killed 140 sailors, and destroyed 80,000 tons of critical war goods intended for Great Britain, 160 million pounds of equipment, food, and raw materials. I'm going to show you very briefly here a clip that gives us some sense of what these attacks looked like from the, the classic film Das Boot. Entfernung 2200. Steht. Da, die zweite sich überlappen. Doppelschuss auf den Dicken. Die anderen Einzelschüsse. Ziel aufgefasst. Steuerbaum 15. Beide Maschinen kleine Fahrt voraus. Schaltung Rohr 1 und 2. Neue Lage 63. Lage Laufensfolge. Deckung! Rohr 1 und 2. Feuererlaubnis. Rohr 1 und 2 fertig. Rohr 1 und 2 sind fertig. Rohr 1. Los! Los! submarine immediately had to dive before seeing the results of its action as a result of the destroyer attack. So how do you fight a menace like this, one that can surface without warning, fire torpedoes in all directions, and then disappear? The British began, in particular, to try to find a solution through new technologies. The British would begin by modifying aircraft, at installing radar, to try to detect surface contacts from a great deal of distance, and perhaps at night as well, something that was obviously hard to do uh, by, air, by simply observing with your eyes. This led not just radar, but sonar and all of the other technological innovations that were introduced to try to combat the U-boat arm to a technological arms race, where each side attempted to develop new technologies that would give them the edge, either in terms of offensive or defensive equipment. So for instance, the introduction of radar led the Germans to respond with a radar detector, as well as soundproofing the hulls of their ships in 1940. 
In response, the British began the mass use of the hedgehog, which was an anti-submarine mortar that would allow its defending vessels to shoot a great deal of distance, a depth charge, rather than simply rolling them over the side. This, of course, uh, made U-boats much more vulnerable from greater distance. In response, the Germans began to introduce more reliable, longer-range acoustic torpedoes, one that could hone in on the sound of a ship's engine. This, in turn, led the British to introduce foxers, which were essentially pipes that would bang against each other at the rear of a ship, but from some distance away, extended out, in order to confuse and cause these torpedoes to detonate prematurely. They also introduced anti-submarine airborne torpedoes that aircraft could drop from a great distance and destroy a submarine effectively from the air. And this challenge in particular, the growth and success of aerial innovations at sinking submarines, placed a great deal of strain on the German Navy. The small Type 7s were extremely vulnerable to aerial attack. They had limited range and were single-hulled, again, meaning that they could only survive limited battle damage. And as the aerial gap over the North Atlantic began to close, the prospects of successful wolf packs hunting convoys began to decrease. In response, the Germans began to pour resources into developing a submarine that was not actually a a submersible, like the the Type 7 and other designs that were then in service, that is, needing to surface and run on the surface at various times because of its engines. They began to try to, to build a proper submarine that would be able to operate almost entirely underwater, the electroboats. These were produced in in some numbers, but only four would actually enter service and only two would be produced or actually deployed by the end of the war. In other words, the Germans had fallen behind in this cycle of innovation and response and by the end of the war had not found a solution to all of the Allied innovations with which they were confronted. Now, the other critical issue in the Battle of the Atlantic was intelligence. How do you find a convoy in the vast expanse of the Atlantic? Or how do you track down a wolf pack that could be anywhere waiting on one of the major routes to ambush your shipping? The Germans had an edge at the beginning of the war. Their naval intelligence had, in fact, broken several of the major Royal Navy codes in 1939. And from 1939 to 1942, the Germans had a pretty good sense of where many convoys were at any given time. American codes were also cracked relatively rapidly after American entry into the war. But by May 1943, most of the Allied code systems had changed, and increasingly the Germans were unable to read their traffic. Now, the Germans themselves used a very complicated uh, code-making machine to transmit and decrypt, the Enigma machine pictured here on the right. It used a very complex three-rotor system, which could encode each letter in over 100,000 ways, which they thought made it unreadable, uncrackable. But the Poles had captured equipment uh, related to the Enigma machine early in the war, which they brought following Polish defeat to Great Britain. And the British using this technology and other sources of intelligence, began to crack German codes in the summer of 1941. One way in which they began to be able to read the codes was the fact that so many of them began with the the two-word phrase, Heil Hitler, which gave them a common reference point that would enable their decryption. Information gathered from the increasingly complex British code-making system, or code-cracking system, was codenamed ULTRA. And it was one of the most closely guarded secrets in the United Kingdom. The British were extraordinarily careful to conceal that they had cracked the codes, in many instances not using information that might have saved lives in order to avoid showing the Germans that, in fact, their, their codes had been cracked. The Germans suspected... Dönitz repeatedly ordered investigations to see if the Enigma machine might have been compromised. A four-rotor Enigma machine that was supposed to be even more complicated was introduced in February 1942, though it was so complex that many radio operators in the German Navy were too lazy to use the fourth rotor, which thankfully gave extra time for British intelligence to begin working on cracking it. Only the invention of Colossus, an early computer would, in fact, enable the huge number of calculations necessary to permanently crack the four-rotor Enigma code. As a result, by the time Enigma was fully cracked, the Allies were able to pinpoint the whereabouts of every German submarine, and in particular, their logistical milk cows. These were submarines that would go out to sea with fuel and food and supplies and refill 
German submarines at sea, so they did not have to come all the way back to the coast of France. Sinking them essentially made it impossible for the Germans to conduct a long war at sea, particularly against America's east coast ports. The attack against SC-7, as I noted, was part of the first happy time for the German Navy. This period would end in late 1940, then resume again in December 1941. Why December 1941? Well, with the U.S. entry into the war, Germany suddenly had an almost unlimited number of targets at sea, ships that had technically been off limits beforehand. And the Americans, for a variety of reasons, refused to adapt the convoy system at first. They refused to black out cities that would have prevented ships from being silhouetted against major ports. All of this meant that a huge number of ships were sunk unnecessarily in the first six to eight months of American entry into the war. In 1942, to give you some sense of this, the Germans would destroy nearly 7.5 million tons of shipping, with losses peaking that fall as Germany finally produced enough submarines to maintain large wolf packs at sea for extended periods. In November 1942, for the first time in the war, Germany sank enough ships that if it had continued that pace, Great Britain would have, in fact, run out of food and supplies. Between 1940 and 1943, in total, nearly 3,000 Allied ships would be sunk, with a gross tonnage well over 12 million tons. Over 3,600 ships, merchants and military together, would be lost in the Battle of the Atlantic in total, most of them in that critical period between 1940 and 1943. 72,000 sailors would be killed as a result. There was a 17% death rate in the British Merchant Marine, the highest actually of any service. But proportionally, U-boat losses would grow even higher over time. By the end of the war, 783 submarines out of 1,200 or so that the Germans had manufactured had been lost, 70% loss rate. As 1943 dawned, the number of ships sunk continued to remain high, but more and more U-boats were sunk uh, per convoy launched. And you get some sense of this from the chart here. So the the solid red line are tons of shipping lost to U-boats. The dotted line is new construction added. And the the blue line here indicates the number of U-boats at sea. And you can see only for a brief period in 1941 did the losses Germany inflicted significantly or even consistently outnumber the amount of new construction. With the entry of the United States, the enormous manufacturing capacity of American shipyards was put to work for the Allies, and rapidly the Germans began to lose a war of attrition. They would culminate in Black May 1943. With new technologies at their disposal, and in particular the introduction of a lot of aircraft systems, VLRs, or very long-range bombers, armed with new torpedoes and radar, the air gap would be closed and German submarines devastated. In a single month, that single month of May, the Germany would lose 43 U-boats and sink only 58 ships. One in four of all other U-boats at sea would be damaged in this month. It became difficult for the Germans even to leave their bases in France without facing aerial attack. Dönitz essentially began to privately admit that his forces had been defeated by this juncture. I want to turn to a few takeaways now in our final minutes. First, a question we have to ask, and one I'm not going to answer, it'll be for your discussions on Friday, is this key question of whether Germany could have ever won the Battle of the Atlantic. To starve Great Britain, Germany needed, or the Germans concluded they would need to sink 700,000 tons of shipping a month, between 50 and 100 average-sized convoy vessels. They only achieved that once, only one month of the entire war, November 1942. And at that juncture, the war was already going against the Germans on almost every front, as we've, we've seen. I want to provide some arguments about why the Allies won and the Axis lost here. One of the key factors was obviously strategy and leadership. The Germans lacked the number of submarines they needed to overwhelm the British at the start of the war, in part because of choices made by the German Navy in the interwar period, particularly by Admiral Raider. In addition, the strategy at the start of the war did not necessarily align with the means that Germany had to carry it out, and it took some time for Germany to adjust. This technological innovation argument that I presented is is also a, a common one, a very important one, that we see in explaining Allied victory. 
Darwin, in his Origins of the Species, made an argument that it wasn't the strongest of the species that would survive, nor the most intelligent, but instead the ones most adaptable to change. And some historians have drawn a parallel here. The Germans were slower to adapt, in part because they had fewer resources to do so, but also because their system did not encourage the innovation that might have led to the innovations that might have uh, enabled them to win the Battle of the Atlantic. Another key element was the fact of attrition. German submariners went after defenseless or lightly armed merchant vessels, but they in turn were hunted by aircraft and by enemy warships. Those warships were very rarely sunk. What that meant was that German submarines, when they were sunk, their crews and their experiences were lost with them. But in many instances, those protecting the convoys, even if their ships were sunk, would survive to fight again. As a result, the Allies would accumulate experience and veteran sailors as the war in the Atlantic went on. Well, the Germans would, in fact, lose their best and most capable commanders at the same time. Of the 40,000 Germans who served in the submarine arm, there were only 12,000 survivors at the war's end. 28,000 of them had been lost. Intelligence. As I've noted here, the role of Ultra played a huge role in the ultimate outcome. Both sides were able to crack each other's codes, but it was only the, the British and the Americans who were able to consistently read their opponent's traffic at critical moments in the battle, certainly by the spring of 1943. And finally, we have to acknowledge economic capacity. It doesn't explain everything by itself. All of these other factors were, of course, important too. But the United States and Great Britain produced almost 40 million tons of shipping during the war, and the Germans only sunk 20 million tons. In other words, merchant marines of the Allied powers were larger at the war's end than at the beginning. This has led some people to assume a sort of economic determinist claim that the, the Germans could never have actually won. But against Great Britain alone, perhaps they might have. The entry of the war into the United uh, entry into the war of the United States made German victory incre increasingly difficult, particularly after the survival of the British Empire over the course of 1942 in the face of the German onslaught. I'll conclude there. We have about five minutes for Q&A. Just note that on our next class, we'll be discussing mobilizing for total war on Monday. We have some microphones coming around, if anyone has any questions. So if the Germans were able to complete like a functional surface fleet, uh, how would that have changed the war? But also, like, due to increasing aircraft carrier primacy, do you think it would have, like, been effective throughout the war? Yes. You know, the Z-Plan was incredibly ambitious. It would have required Germany to subordinate construction of, of aircraft and tanks and everything else to the Navy, which is unlikely to have happened. Hitler just never prioritized the Navy in the same way he did the Air Force or the Army. If Germany had managed to finish the Z-Plan, there were aircraft carriers as part of that program. But... By 1948, if the, either the war had begun by that juncture or whatever the circumstances would be, the United States was capable of producing so many aircraft carriers and surface vessels. You know, even if Germany had a surface fleet comparable to Japan's, it's difficult to see that leading to, to any sort of German victory. I think more likely, uh, a like, likelier path for German victory would be if they had concentrated on building submarines and had had enough at the start of the war to inflict grievous damage in those first six months or 12 months of the war. Um, was there any, any, ever any attempt to stop or disrupt German shipping lanes by the Allies? To stop the German, German ships from transiting? Yes, so a large number of German ships were either captured or in neutral port or uh, in Allied ports at the start of the war, and those were captured and, and turned over uh, to the Allies. In fact, the, the British reaped a windfall of transport vessels thanks to the fall of France, Greece, and Norway. All of those merchant marine vessels that were on the world's oceans became essentially Allied property uh, after, after the fall of those countries. Germany's merchant, marine is, is, Germany's merchant marine is quite small, and most of what it was, there was was transiting the Baltic, trying to get steel from Swedish mines into northern Germany. There were some uh, essentially blockade runners that were trying to get to Japan and elsewhere, but these were quite few uh, in number. Did the Italian Navy play any role, any significant role in the Battle of the Atlantic? 
Yes, so the Italians wanted to contribute in a serious way. They had a large submarine fleet of their own. This was actually, much of it was transferred uh, to essentially to ports along the coast of France, alongside the Germans. But Dönitz had very little respect for the Italian mariners. He believed their ships were not seaworthy, their captains were incompetent, and they really were just using up resources. So the, the Germans would really try to limit their role to observation and reporting things by radio, uh, though they would sink a number of vessels uh, in either the Mediterranean or North Atlantic. They played a very much an auxiliary role compared to the Germans, in part because the Germans confined them to that role. Um, you mentioned that the British concealed that they uh, cracked the German code. Was there any significant consequences to that? Yes. So there were a number of instances uh, where key information essentially could not be acted upon for fear of, of revealing uh, that, that the, the Allies had, had cracked the codes. So to give you one example, the British uh, were so concerned that, that a lot of this key intelligence might be leaked that um, in one instance, an American, very enthusiastic American captain, captured a German submarine intact on the high seas, and he towed it into harbor in, uh, in Africa, uh, essentially declaring to the world, look, look what I did, you know, this is amazing. And the British were horrified because, of course, if there was any German observer present, they would know that a submarine had been captured intact with its Enigma machine, and they might... Uh, essentially change their, their rotors or change their entire communication systems. So they basically told the Americans to, you know, get your guy under control, kind of punish this poor captain who'd done such a brave thing, uh, maybe without realizing that he had, was in danger of compromising part of the Allied war effort. So I know that Germany, like, worked along the Atlantic, but did, did Germany ever work with Japan in regards to, like, destroying shipping in, like, other areas, like, around Africa or, like, in Asia? Yes, so there are some German and Japanese vessels operating in the Indian Ocean, and there, are, there is a very limited uh, exchange between German and Japanese forces where German submarines or Japanese submarines are actually transiting back and forth carrying either a technology, plans, or in some instances the Germans were even loading up submarines with rubber when they got very short on rubber in Japanese ports and sailing all the way back uh, to, to Germany. So there is some exchange, but very little coordinated planning between the two. Uh, it's really no coordinated operational planning, though, again, technological exchanges and some, some kind of help for each other uh, in the war at sea by exchanging information, but, but quite limited in terms of coordination. All right. Well, I think that about does it for us. I will see you all on Monday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Lectures in History. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.